Lord Jesus, thank you so much for all that's happening here at Grace Chapel, Lord. You're moving in, in mysterious ways, in mighty ways, and, and even in ways that not all of us know about. And so we ask, Lord, that as we communicate the things that, that you're doing, that everyone would hear and be able to worship you because of what you're doing, Lord. And I have a sense, God, that there is a movement of your spirit in the Capital District, and there are so many churches that are dedicating themselves to prayer and to working for you, Lord. And I just thank you for what's going on. God, I ask that you would bless this time, that you would um, reveal to us, that you would get me out of the way long enough to speak to your people, your bride, uh, your church. And Lord, we love you, and we thank you for everything that you're doing, and uh, show us what you'd have us know today. In your name, amen. All right, so like I said, I'm super excited. I just want to read it. I want to get into it. Um, this is the, the fourth week of Good, Good Father. It's an exciting series, and and I don't know about you guys, but it has spoken to me. God has spoken to me through it and through his word. So let's dig in. This is going to be Matthew 5, 1 through 12. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's the Beatitudes, and you'll see all the blessed words along the way, and that's what it's for. Um, so let me read it to you, and then we'll, we'll hone in on our verse that we're looking at this morning. <clears throat> Here it goes, uh, 5, 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted. Because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. <laughs> Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is the word of God, and it is an exciting passage that we get to look at this morning. Um, we get to look at verse 6, which goes like this. We'll put it on the screen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And, and this speaks a little bit probably to our instincts that we have. If you've gone to church for any period of time, you go, right, right, we're supposed to want to be good, right? We're supposed to want to be good, and, and that's what Jesus is talking about. But let me ask you a different question. Do you remember, as a child, your first big disappointment? Well, maybe you remember in middle school or high school that first fling that you wanted to, to have a romantic relationship when she just turned you down flat. That feeling that you got when you didn't get that job that you interviewed for or, or the thing that you were hoping for so much in your life has not happened. Disappointment, unfortunately, is a hallmark of our life. And I don't care if you're one of those people that everybody thinks everything goes well for, or if you're one of those people that nothing goes well for, disappointment is a hallmark of life. In fact, life is so disappointing, we have coined phrases that would show us, or, or, or a coined phrase that you could just say to mean life is disappointing. When, when something goes really, really badly, usually someone will say, well, that's life. Right? That's, that's just what life serves up. It serves up disappointment. Meaning, life is full of disappointment. 
But the interesting thing is, is I think when we read Jesus' Beatitudes, something occurs in my mind that maybe we're not wanting the right things, or maybe we're looking for that satisfaction, that contentment, that joy of life. We're looking for it in the wrong places. And this would be so like Jesus to have it so simple and so easy, easy to understand that we just overlook it. And I think that that's what's going on right here. We all look for some satisfaction, some contentment from things outside of ourselves. And it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 60 years or 60 seconds. You seem, we all seem to do this. My life is full of this. I look for satisfaction in other places. Statement number one in your bulletin goes like this. We, will, we all try to quench our thirst with external sources with external sources. And if you just take a second and think about, if you don't like to think about your life, think about your neighbor's life. That would be great. Think about all the things that you hoped and longed for. Romantic relationships, promotions in a job. Here, this is a funny little story. I used to work for a company, okay, that we instead, this was part of the, the process that managers and directors would use. They told me once, somebody asked me for a raise, and I, w- I went back to my boss, and I was like, I don't know what to tell them. And they're like, oh, just give them a better title. They'll sacrifice the money for a little bit better of a title because that's like more fulfilling, and that's what we would do. We would say, oh, we'll make you a manager. Huh? You want to be a manager? Yeah, you don't need that money. And people would do it. People would be satisfied or think they would be satisfied with status. It was a horrible process. You look for, we look for fulfillment in things, um, and, and we do this whether we're, we're saved or not or, or mature or immature, that, that cabin getaway that you've been saving your whole life for, that lakefront property, the new car that's sitting in your garage, or at least you can imagine it sitting in your garage, right? It would totally fit, too. The destination, vacation, all these things, we, we do this all the time, and we look for it, and we look for it, and, and then, and then it, it just kind of turns to ash in your mouth, and you go, wow, that really wasn't what I thought. That wasn't what I thought at all. We look for fulfillment from, from things, from eventually they, these external sources, and we're hoping for joy, and we're hoping for contentment. It just doesn't satisfy And you can get frustrated about that. You can get down about that. People even get depressed about that. But here's something that you should think about. You're not supposed to be satisfied with that stuff. It doesn't matter what kind of car you have in the garage or how big the cabin on the lake is. It doesn't matter. Those things were never meant to satisfy you. And there's a reason why it wasn't ever meant to satisfy you. There's a reason why it breaks down. Those things were never meant to fulfill us. It is way, way harder to fulfill my soul than a new car in the garage. And every time I go back to that thinking, it will. We continue to look for fulfillment. And we look for it on external sources, and then we go, ah, silly Josh, you're, you're looking for fulfillment out there when it really comes from inside, right? Have you heard this? There's a common phrase like, look within for that fulfillment. And we look in. And we look deeper. My relationships don't fulfill me. My promotion at work was just a ruse to get me to do more work, right? The cabin on the lake takes way more work than I thought. The new car comes with new payments, right? And that vacation, you eventually have to come home from. And it doesn't work. 
She goes, silly me, I've been looking for it outside. I'll look for it inside. I'll better myself. I'll find that fulfillment within. I'll educate myself. I'll discipline myself. I'll, I'll become a source of knowledge to the people around me, and that will fulfill me. And you work hard, and you do all this stuff, and you produce all these things, and you have all this knowledge that you, can, that you have at your fingertips. But eventually what happens is you still feel empty. And when you look for it inside, this other thing happens. You'll start to notice other people pretty quickly. You're working and you're working and you're working and you're disciplined and you're studying the word and you're taking Bible class. You're doing all this stuff, right? And you look around and you go, you know, it doesn't seem like anybody else is working that hard. Why aren't those people working that hard? I want to be better. I want to be better than them. I'm just going to work a little bit harder than they're working. Fulfillment, right? And then pride rears its ugly head. And I don't have to continue talking about pride. You all know what happens when we get prideful. Ugly, ugly things happen. Statement number two, hungering for self-righteousness produces hard-heartedness. When you hunger for self-righteousness, it produces hard-heartedness. When you hunger to be better, when you hunger to be more right than everyone else, when you hunger or thirst for those around you to see your righteousness, right? Well, maybe if I'm really disciplined, everyone will notice. It's like the running joke. I'm, I'm the most humble person in the world. I tell people all the time how humble I am, right? It's the, the antithesis of humility. This is what happens. When you, when you thirst for those around you to see your rightness, your heart gets hard and you become holier than thou. Instead of being obsessed with the actual righteousness of God or God-rightness or godliness, you become obsessed with sin. And it's tricky. It's tricky. Who's committing the sin? Who's covering up the sin? My sin that I'm committing and, and, and maybe the sin that I'm not committing, right? We always like to focus on the sin we're not committing until you do commit it. And then it becomes how fast can I cover it up? Because this other emotion deepens in our heart and it's the fear. It's the fear that you all will know that I am as screwed up as you, <laughs> right? And that fear sets in and we cover and cover and cover and cover. Nope, nope, nope. I don't struggle with anything. And pretty soon when you show up to church and you ask me how I'm doing, I'm like, I'm fine, <laughs> I am totally fine. Whatever's going on this past week and last night and everything else, fine. I'm great. Don't ask me. Your heart gets hard. And you start to obsess about other people. And this is called sin management. And for a while, it feels really good when you convince yourself you're just a little less sinful than everybody else. It feels really good. Until until that feeling turns and you fail and you sin again and again and again and then you work to cover it up. No, quenching your thirst with external sources produces heartache. And trying to quench your thirst and your hunger with self-righteousness produces hard-heartedness and then it produces heartache. Those things don't fulfill us. There is fulfillment, there's joy, there's happiness, 
and contentment. And, and you might be going, yeah, we know, Josh. When you go to heaven, you're going to feel all that stuff, right? No. Right here. Right now, you can have those things. You can have happiness and contentment and joy. Righteousness, by the way, if you're wondering what that word means, it's a, 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 maybe a simplified definition of it is being right before God or being right with God. It doesn't mean being worthy of God's love, and it doesn't mean being perfect in front of God, and it doesn't mean being innocent. It means being right with God. And if you know anything about the Gospels and about Jesus' teaching and about Paul's teaching and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and everybody that writes in the New Testament and most people that write in the Old Testament, there is only one way to be right before God. And oh, we confuse this all the time, don't we? The only way you can be right is through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And this misnomer of rightness, it's so simple, it's so in your face that we ignore it. And we think being right means just doing all the right things, or maybe not doing all the wrong things. If we could just get that straight, then somehow I would kind of bolster in and of myself and be right. And Jesus is going, no, it's simpler than that. It's just me. Jesus is the righteousness. And he says it, he says it a thousand times in the Gospels, you guys. But, but here's one way he says it. John 4, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. Translation, there's only one way to be righteous before God, and that's Jesus. It's not the seminary you went to. <laughs> It's not the classes that you take. It's not how well you understand Scripture. It's not if you can read Koine Greek or not. It's Jesus. And you can't listen to anything else. Statement number three, when we hunger and thirst for Jesus, we will never be left wanting. Never. And I, and I thirst and I long for all these external things and all these internal things, and it turns to ash in my mouth. But when I hunger and I thirst for Jesus, we will never, ever be left wanting. And this is true fulfillment. This is the source of joy and happiness, not within ourselves, not from without ourselves. This is through Jesus. And Jesus promises us that this hunger and this thirst will fill us. Jesus' promise is the assurance that we won't be rejected. We don't have to use that phrase anymore. That's just life. Because life has taken on new meaning. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. And we turn that around, and, and I've heard preachers use that to say, you can have anything you want if you just ask God for it, right? We twist it, and we turn it. But what Jesus is saying is, if you want real fulfillment, if you want real joy, if you want to be content, if you want to find peace, it only comes through me, so just ask me. Just ask, and I'm here. He says it again to John on the Isle of Patmos, Revelation 3.20. Jesus says, here I am. 
I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and them with me. There will be fellowship between us. It's right there. And we see Jesus do this over and over and over. And he makes it so simple, so beautiful to find rest, to find salvation, to find everlasting peace. And just when you think it couldn't get any better, Jesus does this. I hear these words and I just, I sigh, a sigh of relief and I go, oh, Jesus says, come to me, you'll find rest. And I go, oh, rest, I long for rest. Jesus, do you know where I've looked for fulfillment? I have looked everywhere, under every rock, in every cranny, down every dark alley. I've gone everywhere and I can't seem to find it. And Jesus goes, come here, I'll give it to you. It's right here. And oh, that's wonderful. And I relax, and it's beautiful, and I cry a lot. <laughs> it's so wonderful. But just when you think his goodness ends, you realize that's the beginning. That's the introduction to this book. That's the, the, the start of this movie, is his goodness for you and your fulfillment and your joy. And I think maybe in our culture, we get so obsessed with ourselves that we think the story ends there. And Jesus goes, no, it's way better than that. It's way better than even your fulfillment and your joy. That's the beginning. Check out what he does. Jesus says, come to me, ask and it will be given, seek and you'll find, here I am. But when you take it, when you take this satisfaction for yourself, I will quench the thirst of everyone around you through you. Jesus invites you into his family and all that comes with that. And he satisfies you over and over and over. But he didn't single you out of the crowd. He didn't say, you know what, Josh, you're just a little better than everybody else, so I got an extra dosage of love for you. No, he didn't do that. It's not that I'm more special than everyone else. It's that everyone else is as special as me. That's the reality. And Jesus does something miraculous inside of you when you thirst and you hunger for his righteousness. Listen to Jesus' words. He's speaking to a lonely, estranged, rejected soul that no one wanted. Jesus says in John 4, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. And if you think that's good, indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the woman at the well. She was rejected in every possible way and for good reason, right? She's what we call a floozy. She makes the choices that we don't like to talk about. She doesn't deserve what he gives her. But he doesn't just give her satisfaction and joy and completeness. Immediately, Jesus starts blessing those around the woman through the woman. And you see this in the story. There's like this snap, and the woman gets it, and the disciples are all confused. And she goes in, and she's one of the first evangelists, and she evangelizes her whole town, the same town that rejected her, right? Immediately, Jesus starts blessing those around the woman through her. 
See, Jesus didn't just love her, he valued her. He valued her enough to make her an intricate part of his plan. You want to talk about value. It's one thing to say, oh, you know, woman at the well, you're a little weird, and you got a little backstory here, but I'm, I love you, and I'm just going to put you over here in the quarter. You, you just concentrate on how much I love you. I'm going to keep doing my thing. Jesus said, no, I love you so much, I need you front and center, and I have a job for you, and I have a calling for you, and there's something you need to do because you matter. You matter to Jesus, and you matter to those around you who so desperately need to taste that water. She isn't the source of their salvation. Don't hear me say that. She's the conduit for the source, which is Jesus. Statement number four, thirsting for righteousness not only satisfies, not only satisfies, but we become a conduit for others' satisfaction. You become the fulfillment, the joy, the contentment that the people around you so desperately are thirsting for. So whether you know it or not, or whether you even want it or not, Jesus not only loves you, he values you, and he's calling you to a life that he wants you to live. You see how far we've come from sin management? Just trying to figure out how to make the right choices instead of the wrong choices. We're not even talking about sin. We're talking about what Jesus wants you to do. You're on mission now. And the point this morning, the reason, because I could just keep going on and on, but the point is this, thirsting for Jesus produces an abundance of shareable living water. So your understanding of Jesus' love, in a way, impacts the people around you. And you might go, well, listen, I've surrounded myself with people that already know him, so I guess I'm good, right? No, we never stop needing to know the love of Jesus. And there are several of you in this body who get this and write me notes and emails and text messages and phone calls. And it seems like when I have the worst day that I could possibly have, a text message comes to my, from my friend and says, hey, I just want you to know Jesus is telling me to encourage you. I need that love so badly. And you do too. So this is why we are all conduits for his love to those around us. Thirsting for righteousness is not the desire to be right in front of everyone. It's the desire to be God's eyes so you see what God sees. It's the desire to be his feet so you go where he goes. It's the desire to be his hands so you do what he does. That's thirsting for his righteousness. His righteousness would have you engage and be active in carrying out his plan of redemption, both for today and for eternity. And here's a little sneak peek. I don't really know what heaven looks like, but I have a sneaky suspicion that it is not clouds and harps and golden streets. We are going to be doing the things that he's training us to do. There is a reason and there's a purpose to everything God asks of us. And once we die, it's not like, okay, that was a fun run. I guess we'll just hang out for eternity. No, there's purpose to it. There's a point to it. Thirsting and hungering for righteousness is the longing that Jesus works through us for the will of the good, good Father. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, says this. 
If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. How profound is that? When you reach for that promotion and you don't get it and you have that feeling, you need to pivot and you need to go, no, I thirst for his righteousness. I thirst for what he's going to do with me, not what I can do myself. It's not a bad thing to want a promotion or a new car or a destination vacation. Those are good things, but you cannot find the source of fulfillment in them. Those are bonuses. That's like icing on the cake. And if you, if you think that thirsting for righteousness means having to be right or making the right choices or being perfect, you will never find peace, satisfaction, or joy. You will be miserable. And I've been there, and I was there last week, and I probably will make the same mistake next week, and I thirst for something that doesn't fulfill, and then I get it, and I go, ugh, it tastes like ash. If you're convinced that thirsting for righteousness means you desire to rid your life of sin without Jesus' righteousness to cover you, you'll focus on sin so much that you'll blind yourself from seeing the actual truth. It's not about sin management. It's about letting Jesus work through you. And if you give up and you come to the end of your sin management and and you see the only hope for you is to be filled with Jesus' righteousness... Your thirst will be quenched and your hunger will be satisfied. This is the only way to find contentment in this life because it's the only thing that truly gives us meaning and value. And I would add, it's the thing you were made for. This produces trust and faith, which is what God has created us for. He created us to trust him. So why would he give us fulfillment from anything else? And here's what we need to do this morning. This is, this is an action thing. It's a little cheesy, so bear with me. But, but if we cry out to Jesus, tell him of your pain. Tell him of your, your, your foiled satisfaction, the fact that everything you do frustrates and does not produce contentment. And you might be rolling your eyes and going, oh, come on. What, crying out to Jesus, does that really do anything? Try it. I dare you. <laughs> Try it when nobody else is around and you have complete privacy so you don't have to worry about what anybody thinks. Cry out to him and tell him what you're feeling. Tell him about your frustrations. After all, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and downhearted, and I will give you rest for your souls. You're not going to find rest unless you go to him, right? And the second piece is lay down. Lay down your internal and your external sources of satisfaction and begin to hunger and thirst for his righteousness. That doesn't mean that that list of things that I gave you in the beginning are wrong. It just means you can't find satisfaction from them. Lay those things down and hunger and thirst for his righteousness. And then the third piece You have to wrap your arm around someone next to you. Time and time again, I stumble and a friend picks me up. And it's really Jesus picking me up through him or her. 
Connect with those around you on this journey. Walk with them. Pray with them. Ask them to pray for you. Sometimes I'll text somebody in this church and say, would you pray for me right now? And I get a text back. I just prayed for you. Oh, that's good. That's rich. And if you don't know anyone, maybe you're new at the church or, or maybe you've been coming a while and you just haven't really connected yet. If you're not in a relationship that's deep enough yet to have these kind of conversations, talk to me. Talk to the leaders of this church. We'll get you plugged in one way or another. We have adult Bible classes. We have some really cool stuff going on on Sundays. We have life groups where you can actually meet and connect with people. Get connected. Allow us to plug you in. Because that's what these things are for. So you can walk with your journey alongside someone. Pray for them and them praying for you. Thirsting for Jesus produces an abundance of shareable living water. So hunger and thirst for him. Cry out to him and let him and only him satisfy. Let's pray. Jesus. Lord, you were literally standing in front of us waiting for us to reach for you. And one way you said it, Lord, you're knocking at the door and all we have to do is invite you in. God, sometimes I think about this and I just go, it can't be that simple. It can't be that plain and simple and in plain sight. But Lord, it is because this is who you are. God, I ask that, that those in this room who are longing to be fulfilled, are longing for contentment and joy, would find it. And they wouldn't find it from these outside sources or these inside sources, but they would find it from you. So, Lord, sometimes you have to knock a little louder than normal for me to hear, and I'm sorry about that, but, but thank you for loving me. So, Lord, I ask that you would knock on the doors of every person here, and that they would hear you, and they would open the door, and you would fellowship with them. And, Lord, I desperately ask that we as a church find satisfaction in you, that we wouldn't find satisfaction with, with how the music sounds on Sunday or, or, or how the building looks from the parking lot or any of these things, that we wouldn't even look for it there, that we would look for it from you. And then all these other things are just bonuses. They're just rewards. They're just extras. Jesus, you are our source of satisfaction. created us to need you. So I ask, Lord, that we would open the door and invite you in. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen.